All right. Hey, uh, good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing well. If you have a Bible, go ahead and find Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. And uh, while you're finding Matthew 15, you should have a roll sheet in front of you. If you go ahead and just like fill it out, then you don't have to worry about it later. And then afterwards, when I come around, I can just grab it. That'd be great. Matthew chapter 15. All right. Hopefully you found Matthew 15. So we're going to go through the whole chapter this morning, 1 through 39. It's going to be great. And uh, before we go through that, just say, hey, I'm glad to see you. Uh, I've missed you. It's been a, a, a hopefully a good break for you. I know it was a good break for me. Time to rest. Didn't have to worry about school. I know you didn't have to worry about school that much. Uh, but just like you, or uh, the vast majority of you, I think, I started school with you this, morning, this, this week too. So uh, I'm right there with you, reading and doing assignments and things like that. I want us to kind of jog our memories on where we are and what we've been doing. So uh, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew all fall semester, all semester, and we've seen that Jesus is showing through his life and his teachings and his miracles that he is exactly who Matthew said he was in Matthew chapter 1, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of God. Uh, next week, we'll see Peter, the apostle, make that confession that he is the Christ in Matthew 16, a very, very important passage. Matthew, the author of this gospel, is a discipled scribe, one who is bringing out old and new treasures for us to behold. And so today, in Matthew 15, we're going to see, uh, I think, an example of why it's important for you and I, when we read Scripture, uh, to read sometimes large passages of Scripture. It's easy for us sometimes to just read like a paragraph or maybe one subheading, what scholars call a pericope, right? So that one section that usually is kind of encapsulated and doesn't need any other context. But if we read more broadly, if we read larger passages of Scripture, like this whole chapter, we're going to pick up something that we wouldn't have gotten any other way. We pick up our story with Jesus having finished his various parables, feeding thousands of Jews, walking on water, and healing the sick. He is showing everyone that he is more than a man and that he offers life and blessing and healing to all those who would come. Pharisees and scribes, the religious leaders, the self-righteous ones in that day, are going to try to test Jesus. But his response will expand into a powerful message for us this morning. And our focus is going to be to move from the ethnic Jews of Israel and their cultural rules or their traditions to the real sons of Abraham and the word of God. So the title of the message this morning is called Blind Spots. And I think what Jesus is doing all throughout this chapter is he's exposing that the religious leaders and even the disciples have blind spots when it comes to what Jesus is really trying to do. And the reality is all of us have blind spots too. All of us miss things that maybe other people can see or notice. Um, if, if any of you have taken your driver's test or have taken driver's ed, you know uh, how important it is to try to minimize your blind spot, that part over your left shoulder that you just can't see very well. And you can set your mirrors and do whatever you need to do because if, if you don't know what's there, you don't know that you might be in danger. And in the same way as believers, we want to have our blind spots exposed so that we can no longer have those blind spots and be able to see clearly. 
So buckle up. We're going to read all of Matthew 15 in one sitting. So put on your endurance cap or whatever it is. Get a, get a drink, get a snack, get ready. We're going to read all of it together, and then we'll kind of chop it up as we walk through it uh, afterwards. So let's read Matthew 15, starting in verse 1. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach, And is expelled. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there, and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put him at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd. Because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. 
And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Let's pray before we go any further. Oh God in heaven, this is your word, your holy scripture, and it is powerful and mighty. It is inspired by the Spirit of God. It's authoritative for every believer. It's clear in its message. It's supreme in its authority. And it's necessary for us, Lord, to to grow in grace as the people of God. We need your word. And so, Lord, we thank you this morning that we have it, that you have given us what we need to grow in grace. You've given us your word and your spirit to illuminate that word, to transform our hearts and minds. So, Lord, I pray that as we think about blind spots this morning, as we think about the traditions of elders versus the scriptures from God, as we think about what it means to be a a son of Abraham or a sheep of Israel, would you help us to think rightly according to your word? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so long chapter, a lot of verses, a lot of things going on, all of it's connected. All right. So if you're taking notes this morning, here's the first big idea. We're going to try to think through some blind spots that maybe you have, maybe you don't have, but are common in our culture. Number one, the scriptures are the supreme authority. The scriptures are the supreme authority. So go all the way back to verse one and think about the first thing that we read. The Pharisees and the scribes go to Jesus and say, your disciples are breaking the traditions of the elders because they're not washing their hands. So they, the Pharisees and the, and the scribes are very, very familiar with the Old Testament. They're very, very familiar with the Hebrew Bible. But they're also very familiar with the rabbinic teachings or the teachings of the rabbis about the Old Testament. So commentaries about God's word, basically. And they would call those commentaries the tradition of the elders. Another word for it is the Mishnah. One of those teachings looks at the fact that the priests in the temple were to wash their hands before they dealt with sacrifices or food, and they extended that teaching out to every follower of Yahweh in Israel. So no longer is it just a teaching for the priests in the temple. The tradition of the elder says, no, everyone should do this thing. So they've taken God's word and they've expanded on it. And so they call out Jesus and they call out the disciples Because if you don't wash your hands, the the scribes and Pharisees say, if you don't wash your hands before you partake of this meal, you must not be a devoted follower of Yahweh. You're not listening to the traditions of the elders. You're not listening to our authority. So they're saying to Jesus, and they're saying to the disciples, do you really love God? That's That's the charge that they're leveling at Jesus and his disciples. This is a classic example of tradition, something a group does that's been passed down for generations. It's, could be both, it could be either good or bad or just neutral. And that tradition gets turned into what's called traditionalism, which is where the customs become a test for faithfulness above and beyond what the Bible teaches. It's not that these traditions are bad. I mean, there's nothing wrong with washing your hands before you eat a meal. I mean, all of us, I hope, wash our hands before we eat a meal. But sanitation is not what's at stake here. It's ritual. It's devotion to God. So they're not worried about whether or not you have germs. They're not really sure that the germs are a thing right now. What they're concerned about is, are you 
Are you following this cultic practice? Are you following this temple practice to be a faithful follower of God? It's not that these traditions are bad, but they're not law. And so Jesus calls them out and clears the air. The implication is that Jesus was being hypocritical, but he calls the religious leaders hypocrites. They ended up using the rabbinic teachings, the tradition of the elders, to break God's commandments or the scriptures. And he uses the example of honoring your father and mother. So we know this is one of the Ten Commandments. You shall honor your father and mother. And this is a, a commandment that comes with a promise. And when you honor your father and mother, uh, you will you ha- have blessed days, right? And, and so honoring your father and mother isn't just something for children. It's something that we have our whole lives, right? While our parents are on the earth, when they're still alive and we're still alive, we're commanded forever. We're commanded in our whole life to honor our father and mother. But what the uh, teachings of the elders, the traditions of the elders would say, hey, let's say you are supposed to give your mom and dad some money or some property or something like that, and you don't want to do that. Then what you can do is say, this is devoted to God. This is devoted to the Lord. And their teaching was, well, God is above mother and father, so if I devote it to the Lord, I don't have to give it to them. You see what they've done? They've taken the tradition of the elders. They've taken their own human teaching, their their human doctrines, and they've elevated them above Scripture as authoritative. And Jesus calls them out. He references a scathing section in Isaiah where God's people were practicing the external rituals. They were doing the things externally, but their hearts were cold and distant from the Lord. Now, it's a sobering question for you and me, isn't it? Is my life, is my behavior ultimately oriented around the word of God or is it oriented around some other authority, some other teaching? Now, you might not think that maybe social media or uh, somebody famous or even like somebody in your family or a friend or people in your school, you might not consider them authorities in your life. But if you devote your behavior, if you devote your life and, and orient your life around their orbit, they're an authority. And you've elevated them in your life as the supreme authority. So is my life, is my behavior ultimately submitted to the scriptures? Or is it ultimately submitted to something else or someone else, some other teaching? During the Protestant Reformation, the church as a whole had fallen once again into this issue of authority. They had taken the tradition of the elders, the teachings of the Catholic church, and they had elevated them equal to and even above the Bible. And so the reformers used this phrase that they would repeat all over the Reformation, sola scriptura, sola scriptura. In other words, by the scriptures alone do we have our lives submitted. We, only, we ultimately submit to the scriptures. And they use that phrase, sola scriptura, to argue that the scripture alone is the ultimate authority. Now, it's not the only authority, Right? There are some things that you and I do in this life that the scriptures do not explicitly talk about. So we think about um, how should I think about uh, using electricity? Do I, do I just turn all my lights on and waste power and, and run up the bill for my parents? Do I just leave everything on all the time? Well, the, the Bible doesn't really talk about electricity because they didn't harness electricity back in those days right? 
And so we need wisdom to understand how we might ultimately submit our lives to the authority of Scripture, but we would be wise to find other authorities, teachers, and teachings that would help us live our lives wisely in the world. So the idea of sola scriptura isn't to say, well, if, if, it's, if there's not a chapter and verse, I don't, I'm not even going to think about it. I'm not even going to agree with it. I'm not even going to talk about it. We need wisdom, and wisdom requires authorities in our life to teach us. But ultimately, at the end of the day, one of the blind spots is we have something as the ultimate authority in our life other than the Scriptures. And we must cling on to the confession of sola scriptura. The Protestant Reformation helps us here. And so we might submit our lives above all to the Word and not to the traditions of the elders, not to the traditions of men. But this little conflict in the first part of Matthew 15 about uh, the commandment of God and the tradition of the elders presents Jesus with a teaching opportunity. So let's look at the second point this morning. It's the second blind spot. The root of a plant will dictate its fruit. The root of a plant will dictate its fruit. So I think we just get this intuitively, right? If I plant seeds for an apple tree, the first thing that's going to happen is that seed's going to germinate and grow roots and grow up. And eventually, as it continues to grow, it will start to produce fruit. What fruit will that tree produce? Apples. Why? Because it's the way it is, right? <laughs> because it's an apple tree. If I don't know, I'm not going to plant an apple tree and then a couple of, maybe a couple of years later after it matures, get some oranges. It's not that something magically changed. It's that the root of it all dictates what fruit it will produce. I don't go and say, okay, I have this tree and I have this bushel of apples. If I just go like nail these apples to the tree, apple tree, that's not how it works. We don't put the fruit on the thing and then say what it is, that it's something different, that it's transformed. No, the root of it all dictates what fruit it will produce. Jesus in Matthew 15 calls everyone around him to hear this parable. What a person puts in them does not defile them, but what comes out. What a person puts into them does not defile them, but what comes out. In other words, external things are not as important to their cleanness or their standing as internal things. And the disciples said that the Pharisees were offended. They literally stumbled over Jesus's message. Why? Because Jesus's parable exposed something about the connection between the Pharisees' behavior and their heart. Jesus goes on to say, every plant that my father has not planted will be rooted up. It reminds us that everyone who is not of the father Everyone who has not been adopted into his family, everyone who's not trusted in his offer of salvation through his son Jesus, will be subject to his just judgments. They will be uprooted. They will be removed from the source of life that they have. The Pharisees here are blind guides, Jesus says, because they do not see the truth of the word. They've replaced scripture with something else which will ultimately lead to their ruin. The tradition of the elders was so concerned about external behavior that it failed to teach them the true importance of internal transformation. It was so focused on what are the things that you do and not who are you? What kind of a person are you? The disciples needed it spelled out for them though. 
And so they asked Jesus, please explain to us the parable. I'm so thankful for the disciples. Like they're going to ask the questions that I'm just not like bold enough to ask. And so Jesus explains what we put in our body is distinct from us. You eat food, food goes in and ultimately comes out. But what comes out of our mouths, what we say and what we do comes from somewhere else. It comes from within. It's connected to who we are. And so Jesus lists a number of sins, sexual immorality, slander, stealing, adultery. All of these things come from a defiled heart, an unrighteous heart, a sinful heart. Here's the point. Many people, many people seek to change their lives or change others' lives merely through behavior modification. I'm doing this. Stop doing that. You need to do this. I'm doing A, quit it. You need to do B, right? And all they're concerned about is behavior. All they're concerned about is the practice. All they're concerned about is the external things. But what Jesus is after is much, much more than that. He doesn't just want behavior modification. He wants heart transformation. He wants a renovation of the inside of us. And so the spiritual, what's going on inside of us, is tightly connected, but it is more in focus here than just the physical. What kind of a person we are is going to dictate what kind of things we do. So here's here's just an example. Through just gritting your teeth and discipline, you may learn to get up at five in the morning every morning, right? Right? You can change your behavior. And perhaps that might lead to you doing some different things in your life. You may have said, I was lazy, I I lacked discipline, and now I'm not lazy and I have discipline. And that's great. Those are good things. I would recommend learn how to get up early because you're going to have to do it for the rest of your life anyway. Right? Do it now. You can fix some external behaviors but you can't fix that soul. There's something in you that's broken. Because of our sin, there's something in all of us that's defiled, that's unrighteous. And what Jesus is saying is, no amount of behavior change, no amount of fruit that you nail on that tree is going to change what it is. That's not how change works. No, change comes from within. We have our hearts transformed. We have our spiritual lives renovated by Christ. And then that tree that's been transformed will begin to produce new fruit. It will begin to produce spiritual fruit. Like a tree, the root or the internal will dictate or produce the fruit or the external. But the connection is still there, right? If a person has a changed heart, then their external behavior will be affected. And so if their behavior falls into a pattern of sin, it will stifle their soul and quench their spirit. If you really are a follower of Christ and you find yourself in a season of unrepentant sin, well, there's no wonder why you probably feel distant from God or spiritually dry or spiritually frustrated. Now, there's a lot of other reasons that could go into that, but the basic principle is this. If I'm walking in unrepentant sin, well, then I shouldn't be surprised I'm not producing spiritual fruit. 
because I've taken away all of the soil and all of the nutrients and all of what I need to produce those fruits. Discipline, here's, here's the point that I'm trying to make. Discipline as a believer is not the same as legalism as a Pharisee, right? Legalism as a Pharisee is nailing the fruit to the dead tree. Discipline as a believer is tilling the soil. Does that make sense? We we don't just say, well, I'm a Christian now. I can do whatever I want. Well, we want to say, I'm a Christian now, and I want my desires to be what God desires. And when my desires line up with what God desires, then his spiritual fruit will be produced in me. All right. As we'll see, though, Jesus' mission is not just to make good people better, like the Pharisees. Jesus' mission is to make dead people alive. And so the third big idea this morning, the third section of our text this morning is this. Jesus is on a mission to gather his people. I love this part. Jesus is on a mission to gather his people. In the first two sections of Matthew 15, we have seen something about the the distinction between what's on the outside and what's on the inside. The external realities versus the internal realities. And as we come to verse 21... Thinking in our minds, remembering Jesus is more concerned about the inner heart than outer works. He's more concerned about the heart of a person than than the, the practices of the person. He's more concerned about love for God than behavior in God's name that actually seeks to glorify self, like the Pharisees. And here in verse 21, with the the his movement to Tyre and Sidon and the coming of the Canaanite woman, we get a beautiful picture of what Jesus has actually been doing all along. So in a little context. We notice in verse 21 that Jesus went away and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, if you are not super familiar with your Bibles, then Tyre and Sidon may not be that important to you. But Tyre and Sidon are very important to people who are familiar with the Old Testament. Tyre and Sidon is Gentile land. And it's the place of two stories between God's messenger and women. So we don't have time to turn there, but the first woman is in 1 Kings chapter 16, and her name is Jezebel. Jezebel was the son of the priest, or the daughter rather, of the priest king of Sidon, the king of the Sidonians. Her da- his daughter was Jezebel, and she married King Ahab, one of the kings of Israel. And if you know the story of 1 Kings, you know that Jezebel was incredibly wicked, She was incredibly terrible. She was an idol worshiper, and she led all of Israel and and through Ahab, all of the people of God, to start worshiping false gods instead of the true God. So Jezebel is not a good character in, in the story of the Bible. She's an enemy of God and an enemy of God's people. The second woman, however, is one chapter later in 1 Kings 17, and we don't get her name. All that we know is she's a widow from the land of Zarephath. She has lost her husband and she has a son. And God uses Elijah in both of these stories to show God's power, his goodness, and even God's provision. In 1 Kings 17, God uses Elijah not only to provide for the widow of Zarephath's lack of food, but even raises her son from the dead. Her son passes away. And Elijah raises him from the dead by the power of God. And that story ends with the woman confessing that power of God. Confessing, I know that you are from the Lord. That the the Lord is with you. That you have the words of the Lord in your mouth. 
So when a Canaanite woman from Tyre and Sidon shows up to Jesus in Matthew chapter 15, the original audience who knows the Hebrew scriptures would have thought, oh, this can go one of two ways. Is she going to be like Jezebel? Is she going to try to lead God's people away from God? Or is she going to be like the widow of Zarephath, an unlikely convert who beholds the power of God when it seems impossible? And so this woman makes a confession. She says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. And Jesus is silent. He doesn't answer her confession. The disciples end up begging Jesus. I mean, you can just imagine the story of Jesus walking through Tyre and Sidon and this woman crying out, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, have mercy on me, help my daughter, help my daughter. And he's just walking and the disciples are like so annoyed that this Gentile woman, this Canaanite woman, this enemy of Israel is crying out to Jesus for help as if he would help her. And so the disciples are saying, Jesus, will you just please send her away? And Jesus responds with a very, very curious statement. He says, I was sent only to the lost house of Israel. I was only sent to the lost sheep, the house of Israel. Now we might think when we hear that, that Jesus is saying, I am only after the Jews. And I think that's what the disciples heard. When when Jesus says, I'm only after the lost sheep of the house of Israel, the disciples were like, ha ha, we know that we're right. And he agrees. And this woman's got to go. But she's insistent. Now, we need to know something just very quickly here. Jesus has come to do what? The will of his father. So you think about God, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is one God, and that one God exists in three persons. And that one God has one will. And so the desire of the Father is the desire of the Son. The will of the Father is the will of the Son. And the will of the Father and the Son is the will of the Holy Spirit. So if Jesus says, I have come to do only what my Father tells me to do in other passages, and here he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then what Jesus says right here is true. And he's not going to go back on his word. He's not going to disobey what he's been sent to do. Because to disobey God the Father is to disobey his own will. I know it gets a little technical for a moment, but just bear with me here. He won't disobey his Father's word. So when the woman continues to plead with him, And he says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Something that seems to be super insulting if we just think about it. I don't think he's intending to insult her. I think that Jesus is giving a statement about the reality of Jews and Gentiles in that day. And how she responds to that statement is a test. It's a test. Remember, God doesn't tempt us to sin but he tests us to see if we're found faithful. So she agrees that there is a distinction between Jews and Gentiles outwardly. But then she says, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. So whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're a child or a pet, you all receive provision from the same master. 
you all receive life from the same head of the table. And Jesus erupts with joy. He says, oh, woman, great is your faith. And we must remember right here that faith is a gift from who? From God. Specifically, it's applied to us by the Holy Spirit. That he regenerates our hearts and makes our heart of stone now a heart of flesh. And so for this Canaanite woman, don't miss this, for this Canaanite woman to be told by Jesus, great is your faith, let, the, let whatever happens be as you desire, and her daughter is healed instantly, for that to happen, for that to be true, means that this Canaanite woman seems to be a sheep. She is one of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. There's a shift taking place right here that recognizes more clearly that Israel, the children of Abraham, are not the children of Abraham by birth or by heritage or by external measures, but by the posture of their heart. Jesus has been teaching his disciples this whole chapter. Don't look at the outside. Look at the inside. Don't look at the external things. Look at the heart. And this Canaanite woman comes up and he says, great is your faith. This woman was a lost sheep of the house of Israel, even though she was a Gentile. Even though she wasn't physically born into the tribes of Israel, she herself was a daughter of Abraham. The Pharisees earlier were blind. And here, the disciples were blind as well. They missed that this woman, made in the image of God, was not a burden to Jesus or a distraction from his mission. She was the mission. And we as his followers, we as Christians, are surrounded with unlikely people every day who may be different from us in various ways. But the story here shows us that they too are not too far away to be met by the Holy Spirit and to receive faith. The heart of Jesus overflows to the people, which is where we'll end. We don't have a lot of time. The last part, 29 through 39, the fourth idea is this. Jesus blesses all who come to him. Jesus blesses all who come to him. This passage seems familiar, right? We got on this story about how he goes up on the mountain. He sits down. They bring all of their sick to him. They're crippled to him, the lame to him, the mute to him, the blind to him, and he heals them. And then after a few days of healing and teaching, he miraculously feeds thousands of people. Doesn't that sound familiar? It's because the last Sunday school lesson in December was that story in Matthew 14. So what's going on? Well, it's, it's obviously a different story. And Matthew didn't, Matthew didn't get his, his, his scrolls mixed up when he was writing the, the gospel. Right? He didn't accidentally copy one twice. No, this time in Matthew 15, he's not among the Jews. He's among the Gentiles. And the same blessing that was offered to the Israelites in Matthew 14 are now being given to the Gentiles in Matthew 15. If you've been around Lakeview a while, you may have heard Brother Al say, God is no respecter of persons. And that phrase sounds a bit odd every time I hear it because of that word respecter. Like, it almost sounds like God is just super disrespectful to everyone all the time. God is no respecter of persons. 
But that's not what that means, right? The point is, is that God offers his blessing to all who would come. There's no person that he's withholding himself from in spite of them. Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, black or white, male or female, Jew or Greek, doesn't matter. The offer is given to you because God is no respecter of persons. That offer is not given in respect to what person you are. It's given to all who would come. To whoever you are, if you hear the call of God in Christ to come to him, you're invited. You don't have to wonder, well, he must, he must not know what I've done. Or he must not be thinking about the things that I've seen or the ways that I've treated other people or the things that have happened to me. He, he must not know about how much, I've, uh, how much hatred I have in my heart towards other people for what they've done to me or, or for what they've not done. He must not know all the stains in my life. He must not know all of the questions that I have, all the doubts that I wrestle with. No, if you hear the call of God and Christ to come to him, it's for you. You're invited. And all you have to do is come. Come find rest, come find life, come find healing, come find salvation from your sins. Come find adoption into a new family where you're no longer a foreigner and a stranger, but a son or a daughter. That offers to you because God is no respecter of persons. So many Gentiles brought their needy to Jesus here and they were healed. And what was the result? What's the result of Jesus's faithfulness to do the work of his father in the world? Verse 31, they, the Gentiles, glorified the God of Israel. They glorified the God of Israel. They did what they were created to do. They gave worship to the only one who's worthy of it. Even in the feeding of thousands of people that's repeated here for the Gentiles, we see the point. Compassion, blessing, miracles, life is offered for the Gentiles too. To all who would come, Jew and Gentile. Christ's compassion doesn't run out once he leaves his neighborhood. Right? Once he leaves what's familiar. It's not as though he clams up and is no longer Jesus. It's not he's no longer compassionate and kind, the good shepherd who loves his sheep. And notice here at the meal, Jesus is doing the same thing he did in 14. He gives thanks, he breaks it, and he gives it to his disciples. And his disciples serve the Gentiles. This is a pretty subversive thing in that culture. That the Jews would go to the land of the Gentiles and serve them a meal. I mean, there's, there's reasons. We'll talk about it later when we get to the trial and the arrest and the unjust conviction of Jesus in, in the later part of the gospel. But there were, there were cultural norms that Jews wouldn't even step foot into the building, the, into the homes of Gentiles because of their uncleanness because of their unrighteousness. And here we have the disciples being sent out by Jesus to feed them, to give them a meal. You and I are exactly where we are in 2022 for a reason. God has placed you here in this place at this moment for something. In the same way he put that Canaanite woman walking along the path of Jesus in Tyre and Sidon in Matthew 15. He's put you here in Auburn, Opelika at Lakeview Baptist Church this morning for a reason. 
And I pray that you and I would see that the beautiful truths of Matthew 15 as gospel motivation to go and love others towards Jesus. That it's not about self-righteousness. It's not about external practices. It's not about being seen as better than other people. It's receiving food from the Lord and offering it to the hungry. But it's not physical food. It's the bread of life. It's the water of life. It's a well that never runs dry. You have access to that source of life. And you've been given the opportunity to be around people who have desperate need of life. No one is outside the realm of salvation. If they still have breath in their lungs, then the opportunity to receive grace is still there. All are sinners, but Jesus is a mighty Savior. All are rebels, but Jesus is quick to forgive and welcome in the traitor. All have fallen short, but Jesus is ready to give us his righteousness. So let's pray together. Believing that God can use us to reach others. That he can use our everyday faithfulness to bring the gospel to them. That he can expose our blind spots. Just like he did for the Pharisees and the disciples thousands of years ago. He can guide us into the truth. There's plenty of life. There's plenty of love. There's plenty of blessing to go around. Let me pray for you.